This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Jenna's Story. We agreed to do this. Last month, we wrapped up our initial arc on metadata in the field of genocide studies when we talked about genocide prevention and the difficulties therein. This week, we're going to be starting our arc on the seminal genocide case studies, starting with the genocide that spawned the term, the Armenian Genocide. Now, before we dive into the events that happened during the Armenian Genocide, and the necessary context to understand those events, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to go over what these seminal genocide case studies episodes are going to sound like. What we're not going to do is a massively in-depth deep dive into everything that happened during these genocides. I think we'd lose a lot of people doing that. There are some people that would probably enjoy that format, but I'm trying to reach a broader audience here so that more and more people will understand the horrors of genocide. So we're going to be covering the events and the context of these genocides in fairly broad strokes. Think of this as a 1,000 or 100 level course at a college, right? This is your introductory level course on genocide studies. If there is sufficient interest in more in-depth episodes on these case studies, I will absolutely put those together, but getting all the notes put together for that and then recording it all takes a while because I have to do research. There's a lot of reading involved. There's a lot of sifting through to find the important details, putting them down in notes, finding time to record, sitting down to record, and then restarting the recording several times as I stumble over my words and get frustrated with myself. So for now, broad overview of the events and contexts of the Armenian Genocide. The second thing that we're going to do is we're going to have a little bit of a, a refresher on what exactly genocide is, because we haven't really defined genocide since our initial episode, which was five months ago. So remember that the definition of genocide is encapsulated in Article 2 of the United Nations Convention for the Punishment and Prevention of the Crime of genocide. And I'm just going to read this off right now. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing members intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children 
definition of the group to another group. Now, I want you to keep that definition in mind as we move forward with the events of the Armenian Genocide. So, let's begin. The Armenian Genocide took place between 1914 and 1923, and by the time it was over, 1.5 million Armenians had been killed. It's considered to be one of the first modern genocides, although there's no clear indication of what's meant by modern genocides. It could just mean that they took place in the late modern period, they're relatively recent, so they are modern compared to the you know whole uh, timeline of history. Or it could refer to the level of organization that was involved in these modern genocides, like the Armenian and the Holocaust and the Cambodian genocide and the Rwandan genocide, the four genocides that we're going to be talking about in this arc. There are two main ways of viewing the Armenian Genocide. We can view it either as a continuity of destruction that began in the 1890s, or as an event created by radicalizing policy. We'll get into the causes and events of the Armenian Genocide in a bit, but before we do that, we need to go into the history of Armenia itself. Armenia lies in the highlands surrounding the biblical mountains of Ararat, which are actually a compound dormant volcano and not a true mountain range. It was founded by a mythopoetic figure named Hike, son of Torgam, also called Hike the Great. If I pronounce any of the names in this episode incorrectly, Armenians don't at me, I'm doing my best. Hike carved out the independent nation of Armenia from the Chaldean dynasty of Babylon. He and his army defeated the Babylonian king Bel, who is sometimes assumed to be a literal god of war, which should tell you everything you need to know about how badass Armenia is. Over the course of its history, Armenia has been ruled over by the Persian Empire, the Macedonian Empire, Byzantium, various Islamic kingdoms, Rome, etc. It has been an independent nation and had periods of autonomy interspersed throughout these various empires ruling over it. And it was during one of these in 301 CE, that's the Common Era, that it named Christianity to be the official state religion of Armenia, making it the first sovereign nation to do so. It was in the 16th century that the tensions that would lead to the Armenian Genocide would begin. During that time, Armenia fell under the control of the Safavid dynasty of Persia. In 1555, Armenia was split between the Persian and Ottoman empires, west for Ottoman, east for Persia. This happened under the Peace of Amasya that ended the Ottoman-Safavid War took place between 1532 and 1555. In the 19th century, Eastern Armenia was conquered by the Russian Empire. This will become important later when we get into the events of the Armenian Genocide in the 1900s. In the early days of Ottoman rule of Armenia, the Armenians had a good deal of autonomy under what was called a millet system. About 70% of Ottoman Armenians lived in rural and dangerous conditions. According to statistics from the Armenian Patriarchate, there were roughly 3 million Armenians in the empire by 1878. Armenians living in the empire would be regularly subject to overtaxation, brigandage, and kidnapping, forced conversion to Islam, etc. at the hands of their Turkish and Kurdish neighbors. They lived under what was called a Dhimmi system, D-H-I-M-M-I, as did all Jews and Christians living in the Ottoman Empire, as did most Jews and Christians living in any of the various Islamic kingdoms that existed at the time. The Ottoman Dhimmi system was based on the Pact of Umar, 
an apocryphal treaty between the Muslims and Christians of either Mesopotamia, Syria, or Jerusalem. Under the Dimi system, Armenian Christians were treated as second-class citizens. They were often referred to as Gavor, G-A-V-O-U-R, which meant infidels. They couldn't build new churches, forcing Armenian communities to build themselves around already established churches. Churches they were not allowed to rebuild if they were ever destroyed, and churches whose bells were to ever be silent. Testimony of a Christian against a Muslim was inadmissible in trials where Muslims could be punished. They couldn't carry weapons or ride a horse or camel in the same way that Muslims did. Uh, if they were to build a house, it had to be lower in elevation to the lowest Muslim house. In the first half of the 19th century, the UK, France, and Russia began to pressure the Ottoman Empire to give equal rights to their Christian minorities. The Ottoman Empire began to institute a series of reforms that they called Tanzimat, but most of them never came into power because their citizens just flat out refused the idea of equality for Christians and Jews. In the 1870s, the Armenians gathered thousands of signatures on a petition demanding redress for abuses committed against them by the empire. The Ottoman government promised to punish those responsible for those abuses and then proceeded to do absolutely nothing. In 1878, Britain and France invoked some provisions from the 1856 Treaty of Paris, claiming that they had legal authority to intervene in the Ottoman Empire to protect Christians. This decision was made after the massacres of what's called the Great Eastern Crisis. The Ottoman Empire was in need of money, and so they began taking loans out from British and French banks to pay for improved infrastructure in their empire. In order to pay back these loans, the Ottoman Empire increased taxes on their Christian and Jewish citizens. This led to uprisings in the Balkan regions, which the Ottomans violently put down. The violence of this period led to the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 to 1878. Despite a call for greater reforms following the Great Eastern Crisis, they never materialized. The plight of the Armenians would only get worse as time went on. Between 1894 and 1896, the ruler of the Ottoman Empire was Sultan Abdul Hamid II. He carried out a series of massacres during those years. Massacres in in 1895 killed between 100,000 and 300,000 people. Despite the genocidal nature of the massacres, Hamid never really intended to kill all the Armenians. This doesn't change the nature of the massacres. The in whole or in part clause of the Genocide Convention still applies. His specific intent was to undermine Armenian nationalism and to destroy ideas of Armenian civil rights and autonomy. What he wanted to do was to frighten the Armenians with the terrible consequences of dissent. Some scholars would say that this doesn't count as genocide because of Hamid's intent, but I usually take a broader view on such things. The Armenians were targeted because of their membership to a particular group, namely being Armenian, and they were destroyed in part because of that. The fact that Armenians could also prevent their deaths by converting to Islam also makes this not genocide to some scholars, despite the fact that the destruction of a culture is just as much genocide as the destruction of the physical body of the group. Unfortunately, the UN doesn't actually have a definition for cultural genocide and doesn't include it in the Genocide Convention. It is part of the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Persons, where they are protected against forced conversion, but it's very rarely actually used for legal effect. Now, in 1908, the Ottoman Third Army staged a coup and overthrew Sultan Hamid. The coup was spearheaded by a movement called the Young Turks. They brought the empire 
are back to being a constitutional monarchy. The Young Turks, formerly organized as the Committee of Union and Progress, was made up of two main factions, liberal reformists and nationalists. The CUP eventually decided that the only way to save the empire was to Turkify everyone and make it homogenous. Their philosophy was also called Pan-Turkism. Everyone in the empire would be an Ottoman Turkish Muslim, and that unity of purpose and thought is what would save them. The Armenians, who still desired their own national identity and autonomy within the empire, resisted these assimilationist policies. This led the CUP to believe that the Armenians would never find a place within the empire and so must be purged. The CUP subscribed to a philosophy of social engineering, a gardening mentality, if you will. Social and ethnic realms are entities that require constant cultivation to achieve a utopian vision. It's an idea that's closely linked to eugenics. Now, there are two main facets of social engineering. Hard engineering, which takes the form of deportations and mass killings, and soft engineering, which takes the form of birth rate limitations and incentives to migrate. The Armenian and Kurdish resistance to assimilation was viewed as a regional backwardness. They just weren't smart or educated enough to know what was best for them. The most common form of early social engineering in the Ottoman Empire was called social dilution. Armenians and Kurds were moved around in the empire so that they never exceeded 5% of the population of any given area. This way, there would never be enough of them in any one spot to give them influence on local politics. Milika Zarkovic Bookman, in 1997, outlined six strategies of social engineering, fiddling with census numbers, raise birth rates of desired population groups, forced assimilation, forced resettlement, gerrymandering, financial incentives for undesirables to leave. Under Turkish, under Turkish social engineering policies, loyalty and ethnicity were synonymous. The further away you got from being a Muslim Turk, the less loyal you were to the empire by default. We can use the Ottoman province of Diyarbakir as a case study through which to study all of Armenia during the genocide. It doesn't hold perfectly, but Diyarbakir is a large and ethnically diverse area, so this analysis isn't for nothing. It's 42,100 square kilometers, about the size of Tennessee. It's populated by Turkish Muslims, Christian Armenians, Syriacs, Kurds, Arabs, Yazidi. It's an excellent microcosm for the country as a whole. Before we dive into what happened in Diyarbakir and what happened during the Armenian Genocide as a whole, we're going to backtrack a little bit to talk about the Three Pashas. The Three Pashas refers to the triumvirate of senior officials who effectively ruled the Ottoman Empire during World War I. Their names were Mehmed Talat Pasha, the Grand Vizier or Prime Minister and Minister of the Interior, Ismail Enver Pasha, the Minister of War, and Ahmed Kemal Pasha, the Minister of the Navy. The Three Pashas were largely responsible for the Empire's entry into World War I and were the main architects behind the Armenian Genocide that happened during World War One. So, on December 26th, 1914, Talat Pasha, Minister of the Interior, ordered the dismissal of all Armenian police and government officials and the deportation of anyone who opposed those measures. On December 29th, 1914, the Ottoman Third Army tried to outflank the Russian army through the Kars Mountains. Out of 
5,000 men in the Ottoman Third Army, 78,000 died, mostly of frostbite. Rule number one, kids, never wage a land war in Russia. It didn't work out for Napoleon. It didn't work out for Hitler. It did work out for Genghis Khan, but the Mongols are the great exception to most of history's hard and fast rules. However, the Third Army didn't blame their loss on waging a land war in Russia and the inevitable loss of most of their men to frostbite. They blamed their loss on treacherous Armenian elements. You'll remember earlier in the episode we mentioned that in the 19th century, Eastern Armenia was conquered by Russia. What had previously been held by the Persian Empire, it was now ruled over by the Russian Empire. This is where that starts to become important. This means that in the area of the Ottoman Empire and the surrounding lands, there were two distinct ethnic groups of Armenians. There were Ottoman Armenians and there were Russian Armenians. Only one of those ethnic groups was ruled over by the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottoman Empire lumped both groups together just under the umbrella term of Armenians. And because in World War I they were fighting against Russia, the Ottoman Empire assumed that their Ottoman Armenians were going to link up with the Russian Armenians and act as saboteurs and spies to undermine and destroy the Ottoman Empire. In February of 1915, Armenian homes were searched for guns. Inhabitants were accused of treason and espionage. All Armenians within the empire were viewed as a fifth column. Fifth column is a term that refers to a group within a country at war who are sympathetic to or working for its enemies. So the Armenians were a fifth column working for the Russians. In March of 1915, Armenian soldiers are all disarmed and then placed in labor battalions. Many of them died of exposure, malnutrition, and exhaustion. In that same month, there was a complete censorship of all Armenian news sources. This would prevent Armenians in areas that weren't currently experiencing ethnic violence from hearing about what was going on in the rest of Armenia. The wartime governor of Diyarbakir, Dr. Mehmed Rasid, accused all Armenians in his memoirs of high treason and pursuing the goal of an independent Armenia. He organized a committee to come up with a quote-unquote solution to the Armenian question. That should sound familiar to anyone who's ever studied the Holocaust before because of the final solution to the Jewish question. In addition to studying American eugenics tactics, Hitler also studied the Armenian genocide in planning for his own. Rasid tortured alleged deserters in order to find weapons caches that did not exist. He primarily used a method called bastinado, which is caning the soles of the feet. They also regularly burned books. Any book that was considered a harmful document was burned. This included geography textbooks because they contained maps of Turkey and those maps of Turkey could be given to the enemies and used against the Turkish army. Physics books were burned because they allegedly contained a recipe for gunpowder. It's not a hard recipe. Basic black powder is only three ingredients, which we're not gonna go into here, but you can very easily look up online. That might get you put on a watch list though, so just be careful. Any book that was written in a non-Turkish language was also subject to burning. They called books weapons more dangerous than any gun, which is the evil version of that line from the library episodes of Doctor Who back in Tenet's arc. Heinrich Hein, an early 19th century German poet, had this to say on the subject of burning books. There where books are burned, ultimately people are burned. This holds true for the Armenian Genocide just as much as it does for the Holocaust that we'll get to next month. April 24th, 1915 saw the arrest and execution or deportation of the majority of Armenian elites. In late May, 
Rashid ordered the death penalty for any Armenian outside the city walls. Shortly after that, he ordered the deportation of all Armenians to Deir Ezzor, a forced labor prison camp out in the Syrian desert. It's hard to find an exact start point for the genocide. It can be the April 24th arrest, the May 23rd deportations, or even the Hamidian massacres back in the 1890s. It doesn't matter exactly where you start, all you need to know is that violence against Armenians has been happening for a while and it's only going to get worse. When it comes to the Armenian genocide, Turkey has a strict policy of denial. As far as they're concerned, there is no Armenian genocide. And if there was a genocide that happened during this time period, it was one that the Armenians committed against the Turks. They assert that all foreign sources are fabrications, lies, and propaganda, and that only the information contained within the Prime Ministerial Archive can be trusted. I've recently been getting into a lot of fights over on Turkish Twitter, because I go over to current Turkish President Erdogan's tweets and tell him to stop denying the Armenian Genocide, and I do this on most tweets that he puts out. This has led to a number of Turkish and Azerbaijani citizens to call me a liar, a coward, and in one case, a serial killer. I don't know how this dude got that idea, but okay, why not? But one of the most common things that I run into over in these discussions is that Turkey, a while back, uh, called for a joint investigative committee with Armenia to finally get to the truth of the quote-unquote Armenian genocide. However, this is completely ridiculous for two main reasons. One, why should Armenia agree to work with the country that committed genocide and killed 1.5 million Armenians, the same country that still denies that crime and even criminalizes discussing it under Article 302. Agreeing to this joint research gives credence to Turkey's bullshit claim that the truth of the genocide still needs to be proved. There are mountains of evidence from Turkish, Armenian, and international sources that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt Turkey's crimes. So, no, Turkey, Armenia is not going to be joining you in this joint research commission. You can all go to hell. Now, while Turkish scholars claim that only Turkish sources can be trusted, Western scholars maintain, for the most part, that only Western sources can be trusted. The archive produced and purged documents as needed to create their narrative. Taner Akam, a Turkish historian and one of the world's leading experts on the Armenian genocide, says that the archive still has a lot of useful data if you look carefully enough. Now, there are six main reasons that Ottoman records are dismissed by Western scholars. There's strong evidence of purging. Documents are produced by dubious means. Ottomans selectively published documents. Many documents were deliberately withheld. And working conditions in the archive suck. No scholar has ever been granted complete access to the archives, only partial access. Turkey will give us shit because Armenia doesn't grant them access to their archives at all, but Turkey can go suck it. Talat Pasha's telegrams on the deportations are used as evidence that genocide was never intended. There's a telegram from the 4th of August 1915 that said, Stop deporting Catholics and one from the 15th of August 1915 that said stop deporting Protestants. In each case, though, he immediately sent a second encoded telegram telling his troops to ignore the first telegrams. Talat would send those dual-order telegrams throughout 1915 to appease the German and Austrian ambassadors. The archives contain hundreds of telegrams from Talat. Now, Talat Pasha had been a telegraph operator before becoming Minister of the Interior, and had one installed in his offices. This relatively new 
new communication technology allowed coordination of the genocide across the entire empire. And it also allowed Talat to send these dual encoded orders and have plausible deniability for the genocide. Armenians were supposed to be compensated for any damage done to their property during the genocide. Turks would be punished for looting or damaging said property because it was supposed to be used to fill the government's coffers. There were dozens of telegrams sent that detailed how Armenians would be compensated for the loss of their property, but none of them ever were. Turkey claims to have put 1,397 people on trial for crimes against Armenians, but there's no evidence at all for any of these trials. Despite Turkey's best efforts to cover up the genocide, they failed utterly. We'll talk more about Turkey's genocide denial later in the episode. For now, we're going to dive more into the actual events. The law authorizing the deportation of Armenians was passed on May 29, 1915. It was called the Tachir Law, or the Temporary Law of Deportation. Local governments and the military were authorized to deport anyone they sensed was a threat. These deportations were the primary method of killing during the Armenian Genocide. Hundreds of thousands of Armenians were marched out into the Syrian desert without adequate supplies to survive the journey. Many times Armenians were told that they had just a few minutes to gather any supplies that they could from their house before they were moved. Now, Turkey will call these forced deportations relocation to the interior in order to prevent Armenians from working against the Ottoman Empire during the war, but that's a load of bullshit. The final destination for those who survived the journey was the city of Deir Ezzor in eastern Syria, or one of the other concentration camps scattered throughout the Syrian desert. The conditions that Armenians had to endure during these forced marches were horrific. They didn't have adequate food or water, and if if any of you have ever been in a desert, you'll know that it's very, very hot during the day and freezing cold during the night, which requires two very different types of dress. So if Armenians were prepared for one when they left, they weren't prepared for the other. What's most disappointing about the Armenian Genocide is that it didn't happen in secret. The New York Times was reporting on it from the beginning. What follows is an excerpt from a New York Times article from 1916. The witnesses have seen thousands of deported Armenians under tents in the open, in caravans on the march, descending the river in boats and in all phases of their miserable life. Only in a few places does the government issue any rations, and those are quite insufficient. The people, therefore, are forced to satisfy their hunger with food begged in that scanty land or found in the parched fields. Naturally, the death rate from starvation and sickness is very high, as increased by the brutal treatment of the authorities, whose barren towards the exiles as they are being driven back and forth over the desert is not unlike that of slave drivers. With few exceptions, no shelter of any kind is provided, and the people coming from a cold climate are left under the scorching desert sun without food or water. Temporary relief can only be obtained by the few able to pay officials. There were a series of 25 concentration camps around the modern border between Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Some of those camps were used merely as temporary transit points. Some were locations for mass graves. Many functioned similarly to death camps during the Holocaust. Deir Ezzor was one of these death camps and is the most notorious for the Armenian Genocide. Late in 1914, the CUP created what they called the Special Organization. The Special Organization is 
similar in function to the Nazi Gestapo. It was the Ottoman secret police whose job it was to give the Ottoman Empire plausible deniability as purges were carried out. Thousands of prisoners were released from Turkish prisons to serve as members of the special organization. They were the ones tasked with escorting the Armenians to the camps. Vehib Pasha, the commander of the Ottoman Third Army, called them butchers of the human species. In addition to the Armenians who died during the course of the marches to the camps, the Ottoman government employed a variety of methods to solve the Armenian problem. Now, in addition to starvation, exhaustion, exposure, many Armenians were killed outright because they stopped marching. If you had stopped moving during these forced death marches, marches, members of the special organization would just kill you. Now, we are talking exclusively about the Armenian Genocide in this episode, but it bears mentioning that the Armenian Genocide is not the only one that the Ottoman Empire has on its tally. In and around this same period, the Ottoman Empire also waged a genocide against the Greeks in their empire and ethnic Assyrians in their empire. Two distinct genocides that we will talk about in later episodes. It won't do to confuse the issue by getting into them here, but we're not going to forget them and leave them behind. We'll come back to them another time. Now, to return to the variety of methods employed to solve the Armenian problem, genocide scholar Vahakan Dadrian wrote that 80,000 Armenians across 90 villages in the Moose Plain were burned. And that's just in one area, the Moose Plain. Thousands of Armenians were loaded onto boats that were driven out into the Black Sea. Once those boats were out deep enough, they were either capsized or people were simply thrown overboard to drown. Dadrian places the number of Armenians drowned from Trebizond at around 50,000. So many Armenians were drowned in the Euphrates River that it changed its course for several hundred meters. The Ottomans also employed various medical or scientific methods of mass slaughter. Doctors administered overdoses of morphine, hundreds were killed with toxic gas or deliberately infected with typhus using the blood of people already infected. The Armenian Genocide technically ended in the beginning of November 1918 when the triumvirate of the Young Turks fled to Germany. Germany had promised them immunity from prosecutions. Right? So those three Pashas that we mentioned earlier, Talat, Enver, and Kemal, those three Pashas that we mentioned earlier, Talat, Enver, and Kemal, fled to Germany after being promised immunity. After the three Pashas fled the Ottoman government, set up a series of court-martials on April 28, 1919. Between 160 and 200 people were arrested in connection with the massacres of Armenians. The three Pashas were tried in absentia and sentenced to death, but those sentences were never carried out. The trials also blurred the line between participation in the Turkish nationalist movement and the genocide. Add in the fact that there were no international laws to try these people under, and pretty much everyone who was court-martialed wound up walking away. At the beginning, of the genocide, there were roughly 2 million Armenians in the empire, and by the end of it, there were some 388,000 left alive. Now, you may remember from earlier in the episode that by 1878, records from the Armenian Patriarchate had that there were roughly 3 million Armenians in the empire, which means that between 1878 and and 1914, roughly 1 million Armenians were already killed in the various massacres that happened under 
Sultan Abdul Hamid II's rule. Today, many Armenians live in diaspora and are denied justice for the horrors that were inflicted on them and their ancestors. The Armenian Revolutionary Federation refused to allow the three Pashas and various others to get away with genocide. Beginning in 1920 and running until 1922, Operation Nemesis was a covert operation and assassination campaign aimed at those responsible for the Armenian genocide. There's a great graphic novel with the same name that covers the events of Operation Nemesis. It's written by Josh Blaylock, and you can currently get it on Amazon in paperback for $15.76. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a fantastic graphic novel, and the story of Operation Nemesis is an important one. Talit Pasha was assassinated on the 15th of March, 1921 in Berlin in broad daylight by Sogamon Telerain. It was a single gunshot wound that killed him. Kemal Pasha was assassinated on the 25th of July, 1922 in Tiflis in Soviet Georgia by Stepin Zagigian and Bedros D. Bogosian. We've talked previously about genocide denial and the Armenian genocide, but it bears repeating that it is the official policy of the government of Turkey and the government of Azerbaijan to deny the Armenian genocide ever took. Turkey denies that the intent to destroy clause of the genocide can was met. They also take umbrage with the words deportation and refugee, instead opting for relocation and immigrants. In 2016, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said, Our attitude on the Armenian issue has been clear from the beginning. We will never accept the accusation of genocide. The Turkish government does not deny that many Armenians were killed by the Ottoman military, but they dispute the death toll and emphasize that there were deaths on both sides during World War I. Taner Akim has written the following. In Turkish discourse, the following argument is commonly heard. If we accept the genocide, then the claim for reparations will soon follow. It shows that the main fear is not what we should call the event, but what comes after the event, namely that they would be forced to pay reparations for the crimes that they committed. While many countries around the world officially recognize the Armenian genocide, there are some that refuse to do so on the grounds that Turkey is a necessary ally in the Middle East. The U.S. Senate didn't officially recognize the Armenian genocide until December 2019. The House did it back in October of that same year. Turkey has gone so far as to make discussions of the Armenian genocide illegal with the passage of Turkish Penal Code 301, which we mentioned in our previous episode on genocide denial. Armenian genocide remains Remembrance Day is observed every year on April 24th, and while this episode will come out on August 15th, I'll likely re-release it on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day the following April 24th. Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day was first observed by Armenians in Istanbul in the year 1919. Despite internal pressures from Armenians and external pressure from countries around the world, Turkey refuses to bend on this issue. And their propaganda campaign concerning the Armenian genocide is so complete that you are so unlikely to find any acceptance for the Armenian genocide in Turkey. So convinced are they that, that not only did they not do anything wrong, but that they are actually the victims of the events of this time period. I've even had some uh, Turkish folks on Twitter tell me that if they had committed a genocide, there would be no Armenians left, which is both an absolutely disgusting thing to say and not how genocide works. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any Jews left in Europe or any Tutsi left in Rwanda, but a discussion for another day. The, Arme the legacy of the Armenian genocide will be felt for decades to come as Turkey continues to deny the genocide 
and as Armenians continue to fight for recognition. That's the end of our episode on the Armenian Genocide. Next month, we'll be tackling the most infamous genocide in the Western world, the Holocaust. If you like what you heard here, you can follow us on social media at GenoStoryPod on Twitter, Facebook.com slash GenoStoryPod, or you can send us an email at GenoStoryPod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or topics that you'd like to hear about. If you'd like more of just me in your life, you can find me on Twitter at Prof. John Strange and on Facebook at John Lestrange colon historian. If you're looking for something to read during the quarantine, you can find both of my books, Representations of Genocide in Cartoons and Representations of Genocide in Video Games on Amazon. They are available in paper book and ebook formats. Please give those a rate and review while you're at it. Speaking of reviews, we have no new reviews of Genostory this month, but please rate, review, and subscribe to Genostory on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps us get seen so that other people can find us. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, etc. so forth. If we're not on your podcatcher of choice, please let me know, and I will see what I can do about getting us up there. Thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music, which I should mention now is named Heavy Crusade. And yes, I did absolutely initially pick that song because it has a very cool name. Thank you also to the app Hatchful and my amazing wife, Mary Jane, for designing and then editing our logo. I'm John, and this has been Genistory. We agreed to do this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.